bitch is bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erica. And I'm Arazu. And welcome to this week's, well, podcast. Um, It's been quite a week for us. It's been actually a great couple of weeks for us. So uh, on Wednesday, so that's last Wednesday, Arazu's first article appeared in the Hill Times about the history of police violence in queer communities. So go and check that out. We are also we're still updating the website and we'll post these things. I promise you. Um, Secondly, uh, I wrote a Globe and Mail article about Jessica Mulroney, Sasha Exeter and Massage Noir. And that will be posted in show notes. It was the um, it was really good one. Yeah. Yeah. It it was like the number one um, article for two days in a row. I'm super, I didn't Get see it, that girl. Coming, so. <laughs> and I was on The Current on Friday for the second week in a row. Uh, we will clip that link in the show notes also. So as usual, we're going to ask for support. I mean, look at all the great things we've done already. And uh, yeah, so, you know time is money uh, <laughs> so we're gonna ask for support from you guys from our pay for our patreon or paypal from those who can uh contribute as usual we are not asking from those who cannot at least not monetarily however if you cannot monetarily support us share comment um subscribe Anytime we make an appearance, share with your people, just spread the word and spread the word for the podcast who is staunchly against the status quo in this country. Okay, so let's get into it. Uh, This week in feminism. So uh, basically the name of this podcast is called Canada's Racist and we are going to give you examples of Canada's racism. First up, Jagmeet Singh. So, as protests, riots, and rage make their mark against the world in the wake of the murders of George Floyd uh, in the United States, uh, Breonna Taylor, et cetera, et cetera, there are many more that I cannot name off the top of my head, plus Canadians too. Actually, there was just somebody yesterday, last night, so Saturday night, who was killed by... Uh, Toronto police. Mississauga police, so, I think. Is it Mississauga? Yeah. Okay, sorry, my bad. Mississauga police. And uh, so this is ongoing. Uh, if you're sick of hearing it, we're about it, we're sick of dying from it. So, uh, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh got ejected from the House of Commons for calling Bloc MP Alain Terrier a racist. It was an act of civil disobedience well suited to the passions of the moment that generated overwhelming support for Singh. So the next day, this happened on Wednesday, June 17th. Uh, you, you might be listening to this on a Tuesday when it dropped, hopefully if you subscribed. Um, so the next day on Thursday, 
I stand with Jagmeet was trending. Um, so part of the issue here is with House of Commons conventions. So I'm just going to give a really, really brief overview. So these conventions and rules are well established and Singh basically stood up in the House of Commons this week to claim he had a unanimous consent motion for a motion which did not actually get unanimous consent. So the bloc was the only uh, opposition to that motion. So in addition to asking that the House recognize that there is systemic racism in the RCMP, he also demanded the RCMP release all use of force reports and the associated settlement costs and also for an increase in non-police investments in non-violent intervention, de-escalation, and mental health and addiction supports, and to launch a review of the RCMP's use of force, including the tactics and training that is given to RCMP officers in dealing with the public. So this is the motion that the bloc voted against. And I believe part of the reason they voted, voted against it was because some committee, there was a committee already looking at these issues. At least that's the explanation that they gave. Um, but I mean, so through, mm-hmm. again, through their leader's behavior in the House of Commons, it's, it's very apparent that that wasn't their only reason for opposing it, right? And based on Jagmeet's reaction and the whole media spiel that's followed it, it's very apparent that we're like dealing with um an mp and a political party possibly most likely that literally does not believe in challenging systemic racism and defunding the police in in a way that allows us to again invest in those nonviolent intervention mechanisms i think it's they're spinning the story right well yeah yeah um i as i said those yeah. were their reasonings yeah right um I, you know, people will always ask, well, what did this Bloc Quebecois MP do? Yeah. And what is your, like, what is your response? Well, I think according to Jagmeet, I haven't seen the video. I I think I've been finding the whole thing a bit too triggering. Again, as you know, based on like a lot of my own (laughs) experiences in Canadian politics. But I think he mocked Jagmeet um, as he voted no. And uh, Jagmeet or the motion as he voted against it, so mm-hmm. it's uh, it, it's it's all very like reflective of so many different mindsets and mechanisms in Canadian politics that just dismiss racism and the experiences of racialized people, right? And it's uh, it, it is like it is a motion about the RCMP and uh, the specific racism within the RCMP, but I think the response to it and the like uh, the party leaders behavior is really um, a reflection of the the broader conversation that we need to have when it comes to racism in Canadian politics, right? Because again, we have an MP who called out racism as what and was punished for it. Yet we have sev- several sitting MPs who, like through their policies, through their behaviors, um, reproduce racist and white supremacist systems of power, and they're never reprimanded for it. Right? They're never actually punished for it. They haven't been ejected from the house for it. Uh, they may have been publicly held 
to account in some ways. But again, it's just it, 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 like I think Jagmeet getting ejected from the House is actually a symptom of systemic racism within our parliamentary processes who we, that we know is based in like colonialism and racist and European structures of our governance. So that's my two cents. So in keeping with that, parliamentary language. So in keeping with the longstanding tradition... For, of respect for the integrity of all me, uh, members, elected officials are barred from using personal attacks, obscenities, and insults while in the House of Commons. Okay, so see, this is what I have a problem with. Yeah, it, it's like the, it's Person, civility, right? Like <laughs> framing, framing racism as yeah. a framing being a racist as a personal attack. Yeah, I kind of have a problem with that def, that that framing. Yeah. And it's because um, it centers white feelings. Yeah. Because the people who are going to be a. Uh, um, uh, uh, what's the word? Victimized um, within this the context. Vic- the, yeah. the aggressors, yeah. let's say. Yeah. So, so, the, so the recipients, that's what I'm trying to yeah. say. The recipients of that label, right, are going to be white. Yeah. Right. And so it's it's a framing racism or being called a racist as a personal attack automatically yep. shields the perpetrator of that racist act. Yep. Anyway, so Robert Jago had uh, um, post uh, tweeted a thread of a history of white MPs calling each other racists yet none were ejected. Mm-hmm. And, um, and first of all, um, you are, I believe you're ejected. If, okay, so if you're called upon to apologize and you refuse to apologize, that's when you're ejected. Yeah. Right? So um, we, like, there's like a whole list of people of MPs, white men, who throughout history have called each other racist and have never been thrown out. In fact, uh, a lot of them have never been required to apologize. Yeah. And it is that requirement of the person of color to apologize as a victim of racism to that white person who committed the racism that, my friends, is subjugation 101. Yep. And that's racism. Because you're already the so, anomaly, right? You're already not supposed to be there. The fact that you're you've somehow... You're already vulnerable. Yeah, the fact right? that you've somehow finessed your way into these like institution that up, like is built to uphold your subjugation and your and and white supremacy that is there is something already wrong with that like they're already mad about it right and it, all it takes is for you to again uh, steer away from respectability politics for just a second to then be yeah. villainized uh vilified and again like ejected right they're just looking for a reason and i think that's something that happened like on a broader scale with even jody wilson raybould right like how dare you actually stay in line with the with your traditions and your upbringing and not with the party line (laughs) 
Um, yeah. And again, it's okay. We're we're down with all, all of these like racialized people being in politics, so long as they don't actually interfere with the way things are done here. And again, it's just like the different sides of the same coin and different forms of the same type of violence that's like reproduced um, within how like we police our elected officials and our leaders and racialized people in, in any institution, to be honest. Oh, correct. Yeah. Um, you know, the policing of spaces is how you uphold the white supremacist mm-hmm. colonial structure. I mean... And Canada is a country of gatekeepers. Yep. Okay. You said so, it. Exactly. And that is for a reason. It is to uphold the, the racial and class and gender structure in this country. So, uh, so that, I think we just explained why, uh, what the member did, um, what the block member did was racist. So, uh, let's move on. Uh, So, Singh didn't apologize. I truly believe that he should not apologize. They let him back into the house, though. I noticed that. I don't know. It's like he got a a get-out-of-jail-free card or something. Or, like, a pass. Maybe he got a pass key. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Anybody who's been listening to this podcast knows that reference. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. And then you're out. Yeah. And then mandatory sentencing. Okay. Um, (laughs) uh, So did you hear Thomas Mulcair? Oh, girl, I'm not even. Don't get me started. Okay. Uh, Thomas Mulcair has thoughts, everybody. Why? First of all, I (laughs) just accept that you're irrelevant and move on because they they bring him out to uh dunk on jugmeet singh yeah like i like he just shits all over singh every time he's asked about something it's like well what do you what do you think about nuclear energy well i think singh yeah <laughs> you know it's like it's like every answer is somehow how singh is not good enough yeah which makes me think he's a racist well he anyway. is <laughs> Well, I, I'm just saying, if you keep dunking on your own party, okay, and for the first uh, leader of color in your own party publicly every time, I have questions. I'm like, who hurt you, Thomas? Who hurt you? <laughs> he hurt himself. All these <laughs> NDPers who are running around talking about how Thomas Mulcair, we should have elected Mulcair. And I'm like, for balanced budgets, are you stupid? Like, Honestly, this guy was a bastardization of what the NDP is supposed to stand for. And remember, I said supposed to. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, now that I got that out of the way, my little rant. Um, so Thomas Mulcair had thoughts. Well, I know Jagmeet Singh well. I've known him for years. He's a very smart guy. Uh, he wears his emotions and his heart on his sleeve. And I understood where he was coming from when he said this yesterday at the same time, Nev. We have to know that calling somebody a racist is sort of the atomic weapon of political insults, especially now. And I think that precisely because there seems to be an awakening of understanding of racism and systemic racism. And when Francois Legault denied that it existed in Quebec, despite all evidence to the contrary, people correctly uh, said that he was completely wrong on that, me first among them. But 
to call somebody a racist because of a hand gesture waving you off because they didn't want to support or provide unanimous consent, I went through something similar. I had proposed a motion mm. that's, that would have said that this House condemns all forms of Islamophobia. There were a couple of Conservatives who refused the generalized, you need unanimous consent. It's hard sometimes to, to know. We did our jobs. We got the journalists to come and watch, and lo and behold, it went through the next time. You don't, but I would never have dared called one of them a racist. Uh, it, it's a big step between knowing racism, and I have no doubt that Jagmeet Singh, Jagmeet, sorry, has has much more knowledge and information and firsthand understanding of, of racism than I ever will. I get that, but at the same time, these institutions are parliamentary institutions that are the place where we're going to hope to have those rights protected and enforced and applied and respected. So if we lose our respect for those institutions, and when the speaker who was in the chair at the time was a deputy speaker, Carol Hughes, she was from the NDP, the speaker himself, Anthony Rhoda, came in, there was a request for an apology. You're doing that at your own risk and peril because it affects the institution, and I dare say that it undermines the very importance that you're seeking to, to, to underscore. So if, if you're using racism because you don't like somebody's hand gesture and you have no other information about that person's core beliefs, they've never said or done anything that anybody would identify as being racist, it's not that you're making them uncomfortable. You're using a very serious term and you better have something to yeah, back and, it up. And to that end, um, given your thoughts, do you think that he is in a position, Jagmeet Singh, where he should apologize as has been demanded by Blanchett? I don't think that Mr. Singh has any choice but to apologize, and I would allow myself to say that a sincere apology doesn't contain the word if. So if Mr. Singh comes in and says, I apologize if he took it this way or that way, but I was only referring to the motion, it'll still leave a bad taste because he didn't address himself to the procedure. The procedure was about recognizing systemic discrimination in the RCMP. We know how controversial that was because the commissioner, Brenda Lucky, a week ago was saying it didn't exist. And then on Friday, she recanted because Mr. Trudeau quite clearly said there was. So she, she, you know, she got into lockstep with the prime minister. But it's, it's a question. I don't think that it's an open question. I think it's definitive that there is systemic discrimination in the RCMP. But that's my opinion. And I'm willing to have that debate now as a commentator, in the past as a politician. But I'd never call out somebody as a racist. I wouldn't call Brenda Lecky a racist just because her first iteration was while well, she was uncomfortable with the notion and so on and so forth. I would never allow myself to do that unless I had some hard and fast informa information and, and evidence as to what her, her beliefs were. And that's the same thing with that yesterday. If the whole thing mm. about, about prejudice is that you're prejudging somebody else, you can't prejudge somebody else based on a hand gesture. Okay, so now that you've lived through that fuckery, let's talk about um, the idea of here's what white people do too, and here's what Thomas Mulcair did. He reduced the existence of systemic racism to a matter of opinion for debate. And so, I mean, the idea, you know, Toni Morrison said that racism is about distraction, right? So, Instead of working on yourself or doing your thing or, or moving forward, you're forced to address all these little questions about racism, right? Does it, does it exist? Where does it exist? How do you know he was racist? What did he do? Da-da-da-da-da. 
that is exactly what Toni Morrison was talking about. So when um, when Thomas Mulcair, you know, asks, and the Canadian press, by the way, by the way, the Canadian press, the um, the parliamentary bureaus, wow, they asked the same question of Jugmeet at the scrum, at a scrum, like, it's like as if the last ways. two weeks did not happen. I know. I mean, what are what 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 are you listening to? Anyway, back to Thomas Mulcair. Systemic racism of the RCMP has been documented ad nauseum. So I'm going to move on. We're not relitigating this. This is not the podcast where it's like racism is not oh. up for debate here. You know exactly. It exists. End of discussion. He. He also did uh, a white supremacy thing, which is which I thought was very belittling. And here's he basically um, this is what he said. He saying wears his emotions and his heart on his sleeve. So he's basically chalking up racialized people's anger about racism to excessive emotion. You're too emotional. Yep. Racist. Okay. Yeah, as if um, white men going on a rampage and shouting and breaking glass isn't an emotional reaction. You know. They do it when their team loses. Mm-hmm. Yep. Should I call like okay. Vancouver hockey fans? Hello? Maybe Thank they can you. explain it for us. Thank you. Okay. And not only that, I remember Penn State when um that that pedophile was being investigated they had riots because they didn't want him to leave even though he was a pedophile like fuck off anyway um where am i at okay equating the discomfort of being called racial racist with the actual violence inflicted on racialized communities and you know for those who are who are are saying publicly privately whenever wherever um how like the pearl clutching of how dare you call somebody a racist is peak Canada. It is peak Canada. That's not nice. You know, maybe you should have sat him down for, you know, at a Timmy's and try to explain to him why he should stop doing that. You know, just like educate him, you know? Right. No, no, that's not what's going to happen. That's not our job. 2020 is a different year. Okay. Uh, he we did not survive he, a pandemic just to come out like as nice Canadian the other side. Okay, like that's not going to no, happen. We came to ride at dawn. That's what we came <laughs> for. Um, so drawing false equivalences with his own experiences. So he says, I went through something similar. What? I, I proposed okay. a motion. Hold on. I proposed a motion on Islamophobia. There were a couple of conservatives <sighs> who refused, but I would never dare call one of them a racist well the it's luxury probably because him, you don't experience islamophobia <laughs> yes because it's an abstract concept for him it's just another political it's just another policy yeah with for people that he has an arm like he doesn't even have an arm's length relationship with nope he knows nothing like this is just getting me upset now okay Lecturing racialized people on proper norms of civility and respect for the for the supposed good of their own cause. So 
He said, if we lose our respect for those parliamentary institutions, you're doing that at your own risk and peril. And it undermines the very importance of the anti-racism that you are seeking to underscore. Oh, I'm sorry. Our inst- I didn't know institutions were, were responsible for our liberation. But also, I mean, specifically when it comes to like Mulcair comparing his, himself to Singh and then bringing in parliamentary institutions, I'm like, excuse me. I mean, wasn't it Canada that literally denied entry to British Indians? Um, oh, funny who, you who were trying that. to like like which parliamentary institution which country was it that did that and was ha- like had to apologize for it just a few years ago right it's it's so funny like the cognitive dissonance that white people experience when it comes to the experiences of like marginalized people and being canadian and what it means to like be a citizen of this country it's like i'm I have no words to describe it because it's it just confuses me. You know, you know when you is can is Parliament not responsible for the same racism enshrined in law and practices and tradition? It is this thing about tradition. Okay, so first of all, parliamentary procedures are partial tradition. Okay, mm-hmm. so there, so some of them are not even you know written down. Yeah. So you're telling me. That they're ensconced in in stone, they are not. So this idea that somehow you are bastardizing the very foundation of this country is a fucking joke. I'm so upset now. Okay. And I got more points. Okay. Suggesting that people who directly experience racism don't understand the seriousness of racism. It's not that you're making them uncomfortable. It's that you're using a very serious term and you better have something to back that up. I'm sorry, did he just threaten us? Yep. But I mean, just like back that up, right? It's very colonial and it's, you know, everything has to be recorded in numbers. Everything has to be, again, we need this inquiry to figure out how this thing literally happened and we, we need to be able to prove it. And it's, again, that is colonial. Our experiences, our lives, they're not up for debate. Our experiences are ours and they're valid. And our communities for generations have known where our histories come, like where our histories are, where our experiences have, you know, come from and how they're shaped on a daily basis like we don't need some parliamentary <laughs> parliamentary inquiry or some number to give you and say hey this is this number of people experience this so Jagmeet is right he is racist that's not what happens right it's and again just like the fact that he doesn't understand the scope of racism and the many ways in which it manifests and mm-hmm. how like Canada's parliamentary system is an institution built to uphold racism at every level across this country, just or else we wouldn't have the Indian Act. You wouldn't, if right? You wanna, if if you want to, if you want to point out something, just very simple, very boom. That's it. There you go. A parliament that upholds the Indian Act is a racist parliament. Okay, I'm just saying. Yep. Okay. Um. Treating their own... So he goes on. He says, if the whole thing about prejudice is that you're prejudging somebody else, you can't prejudge somebody else based on a hand gesture. I'm not prejudging you. I'm literally judging you. Like, 
you, you where's just the pre? That. Where's the pre? I'm sorry. Did he call him a racist as soon as he entered into Parliament? No. So where's the pre part? Yep. Okay. Uh huh. And then wants to because he doesn't understand what the hell he's talking about. He wants to lecture us. He wants to white splain racism to us. Yep. Okay. I'm so upset. Okay. So. Okay, but here's the thing. Mulcair is going to keep Mulcairing. My problem is with the media that continues to give him a platform. I'm like, in the middle of all of this, you thought, I don't care if he has a history with the NDP and if he understands the party. I don't care. Why is Thomas Mulcair the person you're going to ask about this incident? When we know like there are racialized organizers within the NDP, there are racialized execs within the NDP, there are former racialized MPs within the NDP that could have supported Girl, why do this. you think? Why do you think? They, love they wanted to hear a dissenting voice within the party. And so who is the one who is number one for that? Thomas it's not Malcair. even dissent. It's just they just want to sensationalize our pain and our experiences. Like I've literally had experiences with journalism s- students at Ryerson who were like, hey, by the way, I'm going to report this thing about you based on this conversation that we had. My heart is not really in it, but my professor told me that this is how I should spin it. And I really need the n- mark for it. Like I've literally been told by journalism students that they're professors. Like this is what they're actively learning in journalism school to sense. Like it's about views. It's about clicks, right? It's about owning the news cycle or whatever the hell they want to call it. But they're re- just, that's what they want to do. They sensationalize the pain and the racism and the experiences of some of the like most marginalized people um in our country right and again that was my two cents about like why i don't like professionally trained journalists sorry not sorry like you you're guilty until until proven innocent i don't know <laughs> well sorry. you know i'm gonna like take a sip of my water like, now because i'm like my blood pressure <laughs> That's what we're here for. Okay. The last thing is um, he said, I don't think that uh, Mr. Singh has any choice but to apologize. And a sincere apology doesn't contain the word if. So basically, he's demanding total subjugation. Mm -hmm. So basically, Thomas Mulcahy, this is liberal racism, by the way. This is how it operates. It is still the same white supremacy. It just is a different style. Yep. You know? And and w- this whole interview is racist. Okay. Thomas Mulcair is so, a racist. I will not apologize for this statement. Thank you. Well, there you go. <laughs> and you know what? Uh, y- here's the other thing. So I'm now that we've talked about... Um, uh, um, Thomas Mulcair and we we talked about the substance, right? Yeah. So what about the politicking? Because this, to me, looked like it was pre-planned, and um, it looked very. I mean, honestly, I haven't seen a rollout. The like blocks this reaction, the N- or the NDP's no, 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 reaction no, 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 to no, no. calling my racist. N- no, 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 the whole thing, because I. It, I think that Singh must have known that such a motion would 
unlikely pass. And I think, I'm not saying that they pre-planned everything. They were what ready I'm for saying, something to go down is what you're saying. Right. And okay. they, yes. And they had, I'm not saying that they knew it was, would be the block. They probably had an idea of who. Um, but I'm pretty sure they were just ready for something to go down. And they had their like response ready. And then they had, because I saw the um, fundraising. You know, that support Jagmeet Singh and we're, and they were fundraising off of it. And listen, I just want to say no shade. This is yeah. politics. That's how it works. I'm not shading. I'm not shading them at all. And I want I want to say that you can have you can be strategic and still care about the substance. Yeah. You know what I mean? You can you can be both because you have to be strategic in politics. Right. So. Um, like I, and then, and then Matthew Green had another unanimous motion having to do with racism on Friday and that passed. I I just feel like I, I think this is what I think. Allow me, allow me to allow me some latitude. Okay. I think that race has become the topic, right? Mm-hmm. And because nobody has, it's an open field and nobody knows, like everybody's kind of staking out their territory, right? You had Greg Fergus and his, um, his recommendations yeah. uh, to, to quell systemic racism that came out on Tuesday. This happened on Wednesday. And I think that even the block is stating out their territory, right? But here's my thing about the block. It's like, how hard are we going for the white supremacist vote at this moment? Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and they have this idea. So they will parrot this idea that somehow Quebec is different. It yeah. is not. It's just, it's just a different form of racism, meaning that it's just more out. It, it, like, it like marries left wing and right wing racism, yeah. really, into like this melange, really. Um, and... So my question, whenever the block talks about how Quebecers feel, I really wonder how Quebecers of color feel. And the fact is there are a lot of them. And the whole idea of speaking for other people who you have never consulted and they're racialized is white supremacy. The the lack of self-awareness with the block and Bill 21, where they are creating a permanent racialized ind- immigrant underclass, they should honestly... But that's exactly no the point. In their mind, Quebec is French white. Like it's, you know what I'm saying? It's French and it's yeah. white. So yeah. I, I don't even think that they're thinking about speaking for racialized Quebecers because to them but that's my point that's, that is part yeah. of the white supremacy yeah. that is part of the systemic racism they don't exist we're, they're, they're, they're we're not a either, part of our future <laughs> we are targeted for the for the up to uphold white supremacy yeah and when the largesse or the benefits of of this so-called great capitalist colonialist nation um, are divvied up, all of a sudden they don't know nobody. Yep. The point is, is that there is an erasure of us. Yes. An erasure means that we can be ignored, but it also means that we could be targeted. Yep. And so the erasure in terms of being targeted 
is the erasure of that compassion that our humanity and that like relating to us human to human yep because you all don't do that when you think you do i could tell you that hi white people (laughs) nice nice that you're listening okay um so we talked about the media uh and you know the media and the parliamentary bureaus of mainstream media really should be hanging their heads i'm just saying um you had brought up mp selena yes and do you want to say something about that and how that's yeah yeah because as soon as this happened i I was suddenly taken back to like the last session of parliament where uh like selena caesar chavon was basically forced to apologize online to maxine bernier who uh you know when she you know she she, uh aggressively and i mean very i wouldn't call it aggressively but like very uh openly um you know called him a racist and told him that he needs to check his privilege and stay quiet and uh, like selena was repeatedly time after time either made to apologize or targeted or vilified for being very outspoken about anti-blackness and racism, not just within Canada, within the parliament, but also in Canada as well. Even, you know, outside of the news cycles, right? It wasn't, she was doing this every few months, every other day, whether it be in her statements in the House of Commons or on Twitter or in personal conversations. And she continuously called out white supremacy in its many forms. And although she wasn't, again, ejected, she definitely paid the price for the violence that other people continue to inflict on her, whether it be, again, through personal exchanges that she had with other parliamentarians or the online violence and hatred and the misogynoir that she continued to face. And again, to explain misogynoir, it's it's a very, as you know, it's a very specific um, intersection of anti-blackness and, and sexism that specifically impacts black women and vilifies them in, on so many different fronts, right? And um, this whole trope of the angry black woman is what the media, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say all of media, but again, definitely rebel media, um, try to paint Selena as, right? Le- Ezra Levant went as far as saying that Selena is Canada's most racist MP. And uh, Maxine Bernier was like, this MP, like Selena, thinks that um, the whole world lo- revolves around the color of her skin. And again, she received death threats. She received rape threats. She received letters with the N-word scattered all over. And I think it is... I, when talking about, like, Jack Meat and everything that's happened in the, like, last week in Parliament, I think we shouldn't forget that it was, like, people like Selena who, who were doing this work um, uh, far, you know, uh, before any of these current conversations that we're having were even popular. And obviously other racialized women like Rosemary Brown before her um, also had similar ways of calling out discrimination or racism um, in politics. But um, I, I think that's what it literally reminded me of because I was like, I'm not even going to talk about Jagmeet because I, I, I'm not, I'm still not over what happened to Selena and how she was um treated by by everyone by her own party by opposition parties uh by um twitter users and 
I don't know. I just I I felt like I need to get this off my chest because um, again, it it is it is systemic, right? It's not a one off incident that happened to drug meat. It's racialized women, racialized people are often. Um, punished and policed, uh, specifically like tone policed when we talk about the experiences and the violence that we face, right? And it's in Canadian politics, specifically in conversations around like women in politics, there's this whole idea of respectability politics um, that will help us get ahead, right? So as long as we follow the rules and we don't call, you know, we don't try to rock the boat, we will earn the system's praise and we'll be able to climb the ladder. But we see that it's exactly the opposite that we should be doing because as long as, um, you know, um, people of color are punished and ejected from the House of Commons for merely stating the realities that we're faced with on a day-to-day basis. We're not going to be able to create civic institutions that truly embrace us and allow us for come into, to come into these spaces with our whole experiences, with the support of our communities behind us, and to really try to make the changes that we need on a systemic and a structural level to address all of these marginalizations and all of these um, inequities that we see at every level, right? So that was my um, my piece. Um, but again, it's, a it's such a it bigger conversation that, that needs to be had beyond just um, 20 minutes. Um, and I, I know that we have plans to kind of delve deeper into this. Um, but again, it's you know let like we all i I think we all still do owe an apology to selena (laughs) yeah yeah um and i'd like to point out that there was no liberal who came to her defense yep all right so um selena this is a really good pivot into our next topic which is um online white supremacy so vice has an article that um, that talks about a report uh, by UK-based think tank uh, Institute for Strategic Dialogue, so ISD. So they pro- they published a new report that um, basically says Canada is among the very worst white supremacist countries. Yeah. So over eleven million online users globally. Uh, have been reached by more than 6,600 right-wing extremist social media pages, groups, and accounts in Canada alone. Okay? Um, The guy who, uh, one of the researchers, or research managers and co-author of the report, Jacob Davey, said that, he said, quote, we were really struck by the high level of engagement by Canadians. It is clear that Canada has a well-established system of right-wing extremists very much comparable to that of the U.S. and the U.K. and is part of a global pattern, end quote. So Perry noted that besides the more general concern of white right-wing extremism becoming more online-based, the current economic downturn may result in more radicalization. So under lockdown, more people, especially youth, are spending more time online. We, so we know that mass killings in recent years were done by lone actors mobilized by online engagement and is a concern 
that more exposure to these narratives during COVID-19, when so many have lost work, might engender similar violence. So uh, let me just say that um, there's also a lot of COVID misinformation conspiracy theories going around. So that's part of the that's part of it, too. So what do you think about that? Canada's racist. I mean, it's it's really funny because they were they were struck by their funding findings, and I think you and I, as two racialized Canadians, we were like, "Yep, so the sky is blue, and water is wet, yeah. and Canada's yeah. racist." Um, yeah. So, but I think it's it's it's. Uh, it's time to have these conversations, right? It's, I think it's time for the world. I, I think a lot of what really... It's Canada's good marketing, right? Just having marketed yes. ourselves as like a nice country, yeah. as an inclusive... You know, we hold open doors for each other. Like, how can we be racist? Um, right. I think it, it it is time that we kind of start to question and challenge some of those stereotypes. And I mean, like, we're like 10 days away, nine, nine days away from Canada Day. Um, about what it means Is to it be that Canadian, close? and I yeah. can't even. I didn't. Oh my god! And what happened to June? I know. I'm just. I'm. Don't remind me. I'm like trying to not <laughs> recognize the. Okay. Sorry. Of time. Sorry. Um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's okay, but yeah, to really like challenge these narratives about what what makes up Canada, right? And I, I think maybe locally and nationally where we, we are closer to having some of those conversations. But I think what's really bothered me is when I've been at like international conferences and I've been traveling to Europe and everyone such has, you know, thanks to Trudeau's amazing marketing uh, and no thanks to Harper's. Um, there's, uh, there's this understanding of Canada as this like, rainbows and sunshine country where again this whole like melting pot thing right is we all live happily and we love each other and we that's it that's what they have of Canada in their minds so I I think to have a a global conversation around extremism white supremacy and racism and how it's all encompassing and how it's structural um, I think it will do us a lot of of good as a country but, but also as a world uh, to be able to kind of inter- interrogate these narratives and I, I think I, I just learned about the study today so I haven't read it as in depth as you ha- you've had but the numbers aren't surprising right um, and again going back to COVID and um, right-wing extremism and radicalization I, I think I, it would be interesting to see where the government's funding in terms of battling online hate will go um, again, as we're having all of these parliamentary discussions about challenging racism and the response to COVID-19, I would be interested to see where that goes, just ma- mainly because we've seen like a lot of funding go towards like de-radicalization or fighting radicalization in Muslim communities. I mean, I know at least like a few fo- like a few organizations who've, who've received funding or support from the government in having those conversations. But again, we know that... Um, most of these mass killings, they're, they're coming from people with, a, with backgrounds in gender-based violence and connections to like insult groups and online hate groups. Um, so it would be interesting to see whether or not the governments will change course in terms of their response to de-escalation and de-radicalization. But I know it's, I took a like whole turn and I got to my last point, but I think that's that's what I'll be looking at for and to really see if there will be some action um, from decision makers on this. Um, well, 
funny you should mention that. Because last year, around this time, oh, sorry, on Tuesday, May 28th of last year, the Standing Committee on Justice and Human Rights held one hearing of many on online hate. During the testimony of witnesses, Faisal Khan Suri, president of the Alberta Muslim Public Affairs Council, shared what is a well-known fact. In January 2017, the Quebec mosque killer, yeah. Alexandre Bissonnette, gunned down six Muslim women, men, sorry, in an execution style when he came into the mosque with two guns and fired yeah. more than 800 rounds. Holy sh- crap. Yeah. Wow. That's a massacre. It is. It was. <laughs> it's The evidence from Bissonnette's computer showed repetitively sought content about anti-immigrant alt-right and conservative com commentators, mass murderers, U.S. President Donald Trump, and the arrival of Muslim Muslim immigrants in Quebec, end quote. So this is what this guy is testifying to. I mean, going okay. back to political parties that erase and target Muslims. Hold on a know. sec. <laughs> Hold on. So one would think that this is not a controversial thing. It's yeah. a statement of fact, right? But... Enter Michael Cooper, conservative MP for St. Albert. I remember this. First of all, Mr. Surrey, I take great umbrage with your defamatory comments to try to link conservatism with violent and extremist attacks. They have no foundation. They're defamatory and they diminish, diminish your credibility as a witness. Wow. He then proceeded to read into the record a part of the Christchurch shooter's manifesto to a Muslim man. So let this shit sink in. A white conservative MP introduced online hate from someone who murdered 50 people yep. in the worst hate crime in New Zealand's history into the record to berate a Muslim man's testimony about online hate. Do you see the parallels with Jugmeet Singh? We love racism in this house of commons. Um, that's, that's what I would say about that. Um, the conservatives also then decided to invite Lindsay Shepard, <sighs> Mark Stein, and John Robson as witnesses in the, in the persecution parade under the guise of defending free speech. Now, Lindsay Shepard, okay, is a racist. She was on some far, some YouTube channel of some far right Quebecer, okay, basically talking about uh, the great replacement theory. Okay. And the other two are like honest white, like they're white supremacists as a statement of fact. Okay. I'm not like paraphrasing. That story I just read was actually one of our contributions to the Hill Times from last year, which is actually on the website, so there. Okay, sorry, go ahead. No, it's all right. Because you sounded like you were about to roll into something. I was about to drag journalism schools again. Go ahead. Like, somebody tell these people that freedom of speech isn't freedom to hate. Like, those two things are complete. Thank you, sister. I cannot. It's Freedom of speech, speech is BS. And freedom of speech is for white people. Right? Freedom of speech is for white people. I mean, how come Jugmeet can literally, again, a matter of fact, calling an, an MP who actively mocks and denies 
um, a uh, whatever motion around systemic racism and specifically within the RCMP who we know are in fact racist like they were create, created to like uphold racism um, so that's not racist and that's fine and then Jagmeet a racialized man calling that person a racist is suddenly um, punishable in the house of commons what about Jagmeet's freedom of speech? He can say whatever he wants, right? Suddenly, these are big allegations and big words, according to Thomas Mulcair, serious words. No, thank you. I'm going to pass. So uh, the Canadian Women's Foundation has um, some stats uh, on cyber vi- uh, gender-based cyber violence. So in 2009, 67% of the victims of police reported intimidation on the internet were women and girls. Uh, and I am going to assume these are Canadian stats. I yeah. think they are. Yes, they are. Yep, stats can. Okay, yes. Uh, it's 73% worldwide. So Canada is trending there. Um, I think... It's, it's notable to say online hate is generally rooted in the hatred of a specific group, um, yada, 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 that is dispensed online. We know this. Cyber violence. The United Nations uses the term to capture how the internet can be used to, quote, exacerbate, magnify, or broadcast the abuse, unquote, against women and girls. The UN notes that cyber violence is a damaging is damage as damaging to women and girls as physical violence. So it can include online harassment as well as threats as of physical harm, such as sexual assaults, murders, and suicide. So I've gotten death threats. So yep. there you go. I'm one of those. Okay. And basically any woman who speaks out against it's the punished. status quo yep. of patriarchy is punished cyber bullying is often associated with children and youth being harassed online however it's not um just them so it's used to describe violence against women and girls it doesn't always address the root cause of gendered violence and harassment and there are terms like cyber misogyny and i'm pretty sure that you guys can guess what that is so um you know, this is now a rite of passage for women. Yeah. Because all of our, our all of our public life now takes place online and definitely will stay there after COVID. So it becomes even more imperative to actually do something about online hate. And I know that um, I believe that was one of Trudeau's commitments. I believe it was in Heritage's manda- mandate letter. So we'll look forward to that when it comes out. Um, Diane Abbott. I want to bring up Diane Abbott because she is one of the biggest, one of the most well-known examples of online, of cyber violence, really. Yeah. And uh, like she was, so she's, Diane Abbott is an MP for Hackney. Hackney is in London. England, the real one. Um, and former shadow home secretary. 
So she was the subject of a study on abuse. So, and it found, the study, which was done, I believe, in 2018, found that she was more abused than any other female MP during the election. So this was probably the 2017 election they were talking about. Um, so this research was actually done by Amnesty International. Amnesty researchers found that Abbott received 45% of all abusive tweets sent to female NPs in the six weeks before election day. Yep. In the previous six months, she just received she received just under a third of all abuse sent to the same group. Um, black and Asian f- female MPs uh, in England, Asia, I'm reading from The Guardian, so that means Southeast Asian. Female MPs receive 35% more abusive tweets than their white colleagues, even when Abbott was a- excluded from the total. Wow. Think about that. What... Of all the 140,000 tweets mentioning the, sh- the former Shadow Home Secretary's Twitter handle, Hackney Abbott, one in 20 were classified as abusive. So I just want, okay, so I, when you have a platform, so Diane Abbott, let me just go to Twitter and just see what her, um, what her follower count is. It is oh, 345.8 thousand followers. I can only imagine what her mentions look like. Yeah. Right? So one in 20. You could get 20 tweets in like a minute. Okay? In a so second. In they, 10 seconds. Or True, true. In 10 seconds. That's true. Especially with 304, uh, 346,000 followers. Yeah. Right? Especially like during an election period or... And during an election whatever, period, yeah. we're not even talking about people who followed her. Yeah. We're just talking in the general vicinity, in the general Twitter. One in 20 of those were abusive online harassment and hate imagine what that does to your mental health. Yep. Okay. So the abuse, online abuse, is usually highly racialized and also gendered because people talk about rape, they talk about physical appearance in a way they wouldn't talk about a man. I'm. This is Diane Abbott talking. I'm abused as a female politician and I'm abused as a black politician and that, my friend, is misogynoir. Yes. So there. Um... We can, and there was a separate study, I think, actually by Amnesty International that found that black women in general are 84% more likely than white women to face abusive tweets. So 84%. That's like mind-blowing. So Amnesty International conducted qualitative and quantitative research about women's experiences on social media platforms Uh, including the scale, nature, and impact of violence and abuse directed towards women on Twitter, with a particular focus on the United Kingdom and the United States. 
Such abuse includes direct or indirect threats of physical or sexual violence, so cyber violence, discriminatory abuse targeting one or more aspects of a woman's identity, targeted harassment, and and including privacy violations, such as doxing, such as revenge porn, which is sharing sexual or intimate images of a woman without her consent. And they also interviewed, interviewed 86 women, uh, both individually in groups. They, they spoke to politicians, journalists, activists, bloggers, writers, yada, yada, you know, going on and on and on and on. So um, Twitter was found to be one of the worst, yeah. uh, which should surprise no actually one. no one. Unfortunately, Twitter is the place where we organize our movements. Twitter and Instagram. Yeah. I guess I guess Facebook-ish. And that is the um the catch 22 that we're in. I mean, it's terrible. I think it was a few weeks ago that Young Women's Leadership Network had uh an Instagram post about um uh toxic and uh, severe intoxication intoxication severe intoxication and um, sexual violence. And I had to close the comments and like block hundreds of people from our Instagram page because what they were doing is that they were finding survivors in our comments, going to their personal accounts and then sending them abusive messages on their personal accounts. And I had to, cl- wow. I had to remove the post. And I had to close the comments. I had to like explain to survivors, like, this is why we removed it. I'm sorry you can't see it anymore. It was terrible, right? And we're not even that big. And that was like that specific post like went viral. It was it was a one-off thing, but that was how like organized and specific it was. And it was more than like seven separate accounts who were doing this to different people. So it's it's horrible, right? You don't know how to manage it. There's not so many ways that you can control the traffic on social media and you just have to sit there and take it, right? There are no... I mean, maybe on Twitter there are some filters now, but certainly Girl, not on Instagram. Mute. Mute a conversation. Yep. It's lovely. See, this is, I, I just want to put this, just as, I'm not saying that this is going to work every time. No. But even I had a, a tweet that just didn't go well. Because okay? the root causes of these problems aren't online. They're rooted in society. They're rooted on, in our behaviors, in our socializations. Because the, the, the internet isn't the root cause of these things, right? Like misogyny. No, the internet is just a distribution it's, yeah, tool. It's, yeah. it's, it mediates and facilitates the violence, but that's it. And I, think, I, love the, I love what you just said. It mediates and facilitates the violence. Yeah. That was beautifully put. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm just saying. But again, that's, we have like all of these conversations about cyber violence and cyber misogyny. And we're like, okay, let's, let's criminalize it and let's um, punish it and try to control it and add mute options and have a Twitter filter. But I'm like, okay. So we're working on the pro- – we're, we're making internet a safer place, but are we actually challenging their root causes? Right. And, and that's 
I, I think it's a very counterproductive conversation that we often end up having when, when we talk about fixing cyber violence. Yeah, because, you know, these things are only symptoms. Yeah. Uh, if you really want, and, you know, it's not about just about fixing what is here. It's about preventing this in the future. Yeah. Meaning that if you don't, if you don't fix the root cause, and again, this is systemic, right? Yeah. If you don't fix the root cause, then whatever you build will will include all of those systems of power, yeah. of exclusion, and of belittlement, and of of abuse, and of harassment. Because it's basically, okay. it's, it's about erasing its its targets, right? Exactly. You know, Jagmeet called someone a racist and he was ejected from the house. And that was one way that, like, they removed the, the target, which was who was Jagmeet, right? And again, on social media, it's like, oh, I deleted my Facebook account. I deleted my Twitter account. Or I'm not checking it anymore. And again, it's actually really interesting because when we talk about cyber violence, I think this whole you know you know crowding and attacking someone and creating a hostile environment where again that whole freedom of speech is impossible it's actually a ref- again a reflection of like a symptom that we have in our civic institutions and our a symptom of a problem that we have in our civic institutions not just online but even like in the house of commons in different ways as well i think there was a report by samara a few years ago that showed that uh women mp's were more likely to refuse or um uh, avoid debate and conversations um because of heckling in the house of commons right so that heckling and that um abuse when it goes online it again it takes the form of like deleting accounts or not checking accounts so when we're again talking about freedom of speech like whose freedom of speech and whose safety in these spaces are we talking about so I don't know. I think there are and who parallel has recourse. Lines. Yeah. Here's the other thing. Who has recourse when when something happens? Yeah. Because that's the other problem. Yeah. You know, there is there's nothing. Yeah. You know, when I talk about Twitter, the only time we get justice is on Twitter. Yeah. You know, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Anyway, I'm just okay. <laughs> Right. Oh, we could go so we're on gonna for pivot. hours. Girl, I tell you. I'm sure it's going to feel like hours once I edit this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Canada is racist. Our last Canada is racist piece is Indigenous people in healthcare. So we are recording on Father's Day. Happy Father's Day, Dad. Um, we are recording on Father's Day uh today is june 21st it is also indigenous people's day i i think yeah is that what they call it national indigenous people's day i sometimes i get mixed up with like the the former tight the for the formal title aboriginal people's day yeah or or no 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 like just is it indigenous peoples okay is it indigenous history like what are we doing today yeah you know yeah um, so where honestly, if Canada wasn't racist, every day would be Indigenous Peoples Day. Anyway, we are going to talk about BC. We're going to go to BC. 
Well, it seems like we have a pure CanCon content this week. So there's <laughs> that too. Uh, British Columbia is investigating allegations that healthcare staff in emergency rooms were playing a game to guess the blood alcohol level of indigenous patients. Behavior officials describe as an overt example of widespread deep-rooted racism across the field of health. Métis Nation British Columbia, the governing body for Métis in BC, uh, said the staff called the game the price is right. Well, they had a name, did they? No. Oh. Physicians and nurses try to guess the blood alcohol level of incoming patients they presumed to be indigenous as closely as they could without going over. Imagine that shit. Move. A 2015 study called First People's Second Class Treatment found that Racism against indigenous people in the healthcare system was a major factor in poor health among indigenous peoples across Canada. The Canadian Public Health Association said in 2018, those who experience racism, quote, exhibit poor, poor health outcomes, including negative mental health outcomes, negative physical health outcomes, and negative health-related behaviors, end quote. So if the police aren't killing you know, indigenous people. Racism is. Yeah. I will add black people in there too because yeah. I'm pretty sure it's pretty similar. Yeah, we talked about it, I think, in one of our previous episodes. Um, yeah. But again, and I think it's, again, it's this whole stereotype of uh, just the stereotyping and the chronic negligence of indigenous people within our healthcare system. Like, it's been killing actively like legally and you know in in state sanctioned ways throughout Canadian history harming indigenous people and i think it was also in 2013 where a 45 year old man named Brian Silk- Sinclair was assumed to be intoxicated and sleeping it off in a Winnipeg hospital after 34 hours of waiting for care so it just shows you how deeply it runs in our medical systems across the country, right? This whole idea that um, that indigenous people are only uh, they they're coming here to get the you know the drugs. They're here for the painkillers. They're here because they're drunk and they just need to sleep it like sleep it off. And um, unfortunately, it's it continues to happen, right? Um, again, systemic racism does exist in Canada, and not just in the House of Commons, but in every single institution that we've created but it also has a very specific gender lens uh, and a gendered aspect to it as well and indigenous women know it very well you know they are specifically and especially vulnerable when it comes to interactions with our medical systems and um, eugenics and forced sterilization and this whole genocide that was outlined in the final report of the inquiry into missing and murdered indigenous women specifically has ties to um, uh, our healthcare systems and the responses that indigenous women receive um, within the system and Again, eugenics being rooted in white supremacist beliefs is a set of practices aimed at improving the human population through controlled breeding. So it includes negative eugenics, um, which discourages or limits the procreation of people considered to have um, 
undesirable characteristics or genes, and positive eugenics that encourages the procreation of people considered to have desirable characteristics and genes. And we all know how that works out, right? It's white people who we want more of, who are, you know, the superior race and born to rule the world. And then there's the rest of us, and specifically in Canada, the indigenous population who continues to be a problem and, again, must be rooted out. So many Canadians supported eugenics uh, and eugenic policies in the early 20th century, including some medical professionals, politicians, and first wave uh, women's rights advocates, um, including the famous five that white feminists in this country love. Tell us more. Um, so... Um, both Alberta and British Columbia had sexual sterilization acts, which were not repealed, listen, were not repealed until the 1970s. Although often considered a pseudoscience and a thing of the past, uh, its methods have continued into the 21st century, and that includes the coerced sterilization of indigenous women in hospitals across the country, and it's been named New Eugenics. Um, and it's uh, you know and that includes again genetic uh, genetic editing and the screening of fetuses for disabilities and again it is a movement that sought um in canada to actively support the reproduction of some women um as we like to say while at the same time seeking to ensure their cooperation and effort to curb the reproduction of others to their support for measures like marriage regulation, institutionalization, and sterilizations. And yeah, because I think, and it it was a part of this like colonial nation building in Canada, right? Of encouraging white women to become good housewives and give birth to the future of this nation, while again, it actively and forcefully um, took away the, the autonomy and um, reproductive justice away from indigenous women. I'm going to delve a bit like more deeply into BC, where in 1933, it became one of the two provinces to implement a clear eugenic sexual stri- sterilization law. And um, it was closely, it closely resembled Alberta's legislation, although the practices were different. So in Alberta, the legislation was amended twice to increase the program scope and efficiency, while British Columbia's sterilization program remained unchanged. And um, that Albertan efficiency. Yeah. And we also had the Canadian sterilization. Um, the, there was a eugenics board in Canada that could impose sterilization on people without their consent. So um, this was specifically enacted upon indigenous men, women and children. And between the 1970s and the ni- and uh, in the 1970s, um, between 1970 and 1975, there was actually there were actually 1200 indigenous women who were sterilized without their consent. According to Karen Stote, a researcher and the author of An Act of Genocide, one of the only books on the history of forced sterilization in Canada. And we know that as recently as 2019, um, that Indigenous women have been coming forward with stories of forced sterilizations in hospitals across Canada. They've been often coerced into being sterilized by doctors, nurses, and medical practitioners. And I remember reading yeah, about that. Yeah, and that was... And it was last year. 
that yeah. this was happening in, like, in Manitoba the, the and Alberta was from last year. Yeah. yeah. And again, yeah. when the final report of the missing and murdered indigenous women um, inquiry called violence against indigenous women, girls and two spirit people, a genocide. Um, I, I, I think that genocide and our response to that as as strong allies, as, and I'm using the word of the inquiry itself, is to actually educate ourselves about the, 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 the racist and the white supremacy the white supremacy and some of our feminist heroes that we continue to uphold i mean they have like agnes mcphail emily murphy these are the famous five members of the famous five who 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 were um advocates for eugenics right who believed that um white you know the white race was superior who believed that in the indigenous people to people with disabilities um had to have their autonomy and their reproductive rights taken away from them and um again there's so much that education and conversation that needs to happen especially at this time when everyone's like we're talking about removing the statu- the statues of slavers you know people are throwing their statues um into the river and basically destroying them um, I, I think it's time for us to kind of not, you know, stop letting white women get away with these violent histories of colonialism and racism that to this day impact the lives of racialized women. And I mean, also black women. I mean, there is, there yeah. must be a history. There's of always a parallel with right? black and indigenous, how white supremacy yeah, um, treats black and indigenous yeah. people. Yeah. It's not the same, but it's, but it's, it's very parallel similar. for yeah. sure. It's yeah. very similar. So, um, so you know what? I just looked up uh, Murphy. Yeah. Uh, Emily is that? Oh, her? she's. Oh my God, girl! We need to have a whole episode just for our girl Emily. Okay, we will have a whole episode, and I will. I will just say we need to have a whole episode. We listen. I'm here for interrogating everything. Yeah. Okay. So if we have to interrogate these people, I am here for it. Okay. Yeah. For people who are like, it's too much. I'm like, bye. No. <laughs> Okay, so she wrote this book called The Black Candle. Yeah. Which depicts uh, a picture of drug abuse in Canada. Yeah. Detailing Murphy's understanding of the use and effects of opium, cocaine, and pharmaceuticals, as well as the new menace, which was marijuana. She is basically the person who racialized the war on drugs like she literally printed copies of this book went to the league of nations where leaders of different countries were present and handed it out to them so now we're stuck with all of these drug policies that disproportionately impact black people racialized people and incarcerate them um and and no one no one's talking about the fact that it was our one of our favorite members of the famous five who was responsible for this like there is a specific history to that you know the things that i'm learning impressive like even i'm continuing to learn which i love i read okay. about this like a year and a half ago for for a university paper and i haven't stopped uh-huh. talking about this Especially wow. with all of these like quirky feminist marijuana shops popping up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, no, we're going to talk, talk about, about marijuana at so- like at some point. Yeah. Trust. Okay. So um, da, 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 da. now this is what this is what I found interesting. Uh, 
there's a quote that she Murphy's concern with drugs began when she started coming into disproportionate contact with Chinese people yep. in her courtroom because they were overrepresented in the criminal justice system. system. Yeah. Okay. I feel like that's a great note to end up on. All right. Ciao. My bitch is bad and bullshit.